You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 031, with Mark Malik, the founder of Conquest Capital Group. This episode is sponsored by Swiss Financial Services. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome to another episode of Top Traders Unplugged. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I know how valuable your time is, so I appreciate you spending some of it here with me today. I also just want to thank those of you who have left an honest rating and review in iTunes. Not only are they really helpful for me and the show, but many of them are also quite funny. So I decided to put an automatic stream of the last five headlines that I get in these reviews on my website. So go check them out. I'm sure you'll find that they will put a smile on your face too. On today's show, I'm talking to Mark Malik, founder of Conquest Capital Group. Mark was originally given a grant by NASA to study how to optimize the position of tanks in a battlefield to increase the chances of winning the battle. But as his background had taken him away from a real war zone in Lebanon, he was at the last minute encouraged to spend his time looking at stocks, bonds and currencies instead. This lucky break became the beginning of a long career in the financial world, working for some of the largest financial institutions before setting up his first independent venture in 1999, which led him to where he is today. Now, for those of you who are new to the show, I just want to let you know that you can find all of the show notes, including a full transcript of today's episode on the toptradersonplug.com website. Now, let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Mark, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank, thank you, Niels. You're welcome. Now, as I was preparing for our conversation today, I noticed a couple of interesting things that I'm sure we'll have a chance to discuss. Um, but just to give you some of my initial observation. Now, it strikes me that you have quite a large number of different strategies that you offer both in the alpha strategy space, but also some alternative beta strategies, which to me suggests that you have diversified your business into more of a, uh, can I call it a solution-oriented firm rather than being more a standard type of alternative investment uh, company. The other thing I noticed was that you began your career working for some of the very large institutions in the world, yet you chose the entrepreneurial path. And I can imagine that's quite a, a change in itself. And I'd love to hear more about that. Um, and then I also noticed that you developed this risk aversion index, which I find very interesting and uh, would certainly like to uh, spend a bit of time discussing these things. But so, you, you know, I'm excited about all these uh, topics that we can talk about. But before we go into that and before we find out where your company is today, 
I would really love for you to take us all the way back to the beginning of your story and tell us about what led you to take this path in life and and really feel free to go back as as far as you want, Mark. Sure. It's actually, it's a fairly uh, interesting sort of uh, path that um, led me to sort of where uh, we are today. Okay. But um, before I get started again, thank you, Neil, for uh, giving us this opportunity. All the points that you mentioned are uh, definitely something that we can get into and uh, each one has sort of its own particular story. Great. But starting starting with the background, originally I'm from Beirut, Lebanon. I graduated from Caltech in 1992. Um, at Caltech, I was studying um, neural networks and decision support systems. Mm-hmm. I was um, sort of very immersed in that field and um, definitely planning on, you know, getting my PhD in the field and continuing my research there. Mm-hmm. In my junior year at Caltech, I um, received a grant from uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is uh, one of the eight NASA centers in the U.S. that Caltech runs. Okay. The grant was to basically study how you can position tanks in a battlefield okay. uh, to optimize to your chances of winning mm-hmm. uh, based on a new mathematical techniques technique called scenario analysis. Right. The person who was doing the leading research in the field of scenario analysis was a professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. So I traveled um, over the summer from uh, from Caltech to uh, to Wisconsin to Madison to mm-hmm. do the research with him. We sort of before you know we started. He's uh, you know getting to know each other and uh, finds out I'm from Lebanon and you know says something like you know we just came from a battlefield. Do you really want to spend the whole term looking at tanks and battlefield? Yeah. Why don't you apply the grant? to the optimization problem of something like stocks, bonds, and currencies. Mm-hmm. Mathematically, it's the same project, uh, you know, whether you're using green tanks and blue tanks and yellow tanks or stocks, bonds, and you know, commodities or effects. Uh, it's really the same sort of mathematical work that needs to be done. So, you know, said so fine. Um, at that point, I really didn't know what a stock or a bond was. I sort of never spent any time looking at uh, any of this stuff. Sure. I remember I had to go out and get a book that actually, you know, just gave me the definitions of these things. Mm. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't have Google back then. Right. Uh, <laughs> so I did my research, ended up writing a paper that was published um, at the university mm-hmm. and um, went back to Caltech to sort of finish my uh, senior year. In my senior year, I was very excited uh, because I was uh, finishing the top of my class at Caltech, mm-hmm. and I had the highest job offer from Oracle to go and um, work there for a couple of years before going back and getting my PhD. Actually, back then, uh, Larry Allison was still signing the offer letters, so I wow. still uh, I still have that letter from him. Fantastic. So, <laughs> I was very excited. I had the you know the highest job offer from you know anyone at Caltech, which I think at the time this is ninety one was mm-hmm. about like forty five thousand dollars or something. Right. Sometime in the spring of my junior year, I get a call from uh, somebody calling from New York. Uh, says you know this is so and so. I'm calling from Solomon Brothers, and we'd like to invite you over for an interview. Okay. 
I was kind of shocked at first, but it turns out that they had read my paper <laughs> and wanted to interview me. So that's fine, you know, free trip to New York. <laughs> I went to New York with absolutely no intention to, or no understanding of what the job was. Anyway, to make a long story short, I sort of fell in love with the whole concept of, you know, trading and money management, it's sort of the way at least I understood it, you know, sure. from a couple of days in, uh, you know, interviewing. Yeah. At the end of those couple of days, the MD pulled me in the office, says something like, you know, we normally don't do this, but everyone likes you and we're going to make you an offer on the spot, okay. which was, you know, uh, quite a bit more than what Oracle had offered. Right. Uh, so, so that was sort of the beginning of how I got into this whole thing. Mm. It quickly, sort of very shortly after I got to Solomon, because I was hired in research, I realized that I'm not rather be on the trading side than the research side. Mm -hmm. So I left after about a year and change to join an ex-Solomon trader that uh, had started a hedge fund back, you know, in the early in the early 90s. Okay. Uh, he hired me basically to develop trading systems for him and trade currency options. Mm -hmm. So I did that until about end of 94, beginning of 95 when I was hired uh, by uh, UBS uh, to start and run the uh, sort of an over, you know, global group in exotic derivatives. Right. Which on foreign exchange, okay. which essentially were all, you know, every, every derivative that goes beyond a simple call or a put. Okay. I did that until 97 when uh, UBS and SBC merged. Yeah. At which point I was promoted to run the combined banks prop trading groups in, in London and the Americas. Mm -hmm. uh, prior to that, you know, in, in setting up the global exotic derivatives group, I had set it up in New York initially, then uh, moved to London, set it up there, then moved to Tokyo and set it up there, globalized mm -hmm. it and ran it from Tokyo until uh, I got promoted to run the prop trading groups. Uh, I moved then back to London and that was, you know, around sort of that 98 and sort of if you remember the uh, the turmoil in the markets in 98 sure. and, you know, the bank had lost a lot of money, which really cemented my decision to leave. I was thinking about leaving before that, okay. but uh, seeing sort of the effect on my own um, compensation and limits and things like that from things that were happening in other parts of the bank. Right. Basically, you know, kind of cemented my view that, like, uh, I think on Wall Street, you have maybe, I don't know, 5 to 10% uh, top producers uh, that pay for probably 80-90% of kind of mediocre or below average people. Sure. And if you're kind of vain enough to think of yourself as that, you know, top 10 or 5%, <laughs> then really by working on Wall Street, you're subsidizing everybody else. Right. So I decided to leave and start my own firm. Mm -hmm. And uh, sort of that was the beginning of uh, of me into the hedge fund world. Right. Did you know what you were going to do at that stage? I mean, did you know from day one this this is exactly how I'm going to do it, or was it more like okay, let me let me? No, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, prior to doing that, I had ran 
quite a substantial global prop trading group at UBS. Mm. Uh, I had, you know, about 18 traders, um, each one uh, senior in their own rights that reported to me. In my own trading at UBS, uh, well, actually starting from my days at the hedge fund, you know, in the in the sort of 93, 94 area uh, time. Sure. Uh, going to uh, the period where I ran exotic derivatives at UBS, which uh, also included a large portion of prop trading, mm. uh, which really was the reason why they promoted me to run the prop trading right. uh, groups afterwards. Uh, throughout this whole process, I had a very, I had developed and used uh, systematic models to trade in the market. Right. I've always had the philosophy that, uh, look, if you look at basically any successful discretionary trader, they don't sort of, you know, wake up randomly one day and decide to put on a position because they had a dream or, <laughs> you know, maybe some do, but sure. uh, not usually not the successful ones. Sure. Um, usually it's a thought process um, that leads you to put on the trade. Mm. Uh, you look for certain things to happen either technically or fundamentally. When these conditions are met, um, you put a trade on. Uh, when you put that trade on, you know ahead of time how much you're willing to risk on that trade, what position size you need to have for that risk, and where the stop on it should be, and where your take profit on it should be. Sure. Now, when you list all these things uh, one after the other, it really, um, it's no different than kind of the algorithms that go into creating a trading model. Sure. So I think with a lot of the very successful traders, if they had sort of the mathematical and computer background, um, they can very easily turn a lot of that thought process into an algorithm. And once you have it as an algorithm, then it's very easy to program it. And at that point, uh, a computer is a much more efficient um, tool to execute your own view for a variety of reasons, you know, stretching from taking the emotions out of it uh, to efficiency of execution to giving you the flexibility of trading many more markets uh, that you, you know, cannot follow yourself, but a computer can do it in a much easier way and so on. So I've always had a very systematic approach from my days at UBS. So on day one, uh, when I left and went on my own, uh, I had, you know, a suite of, of ideas uh, that I knew I wanted to start with and uh, work on. And also, you know, when, when I started, I had a partner at the time. And he also came with um, his own ideas. And basically, you know, our product was, you know, a combination of a lot of brainstorming into kind of the background that I brought and the background that he brought. Sure. And let me just ask you, it's just sort of a, a spur of the moment question here. Um, when you explain why people, if they had the knowledge uh, of programming or putting together sort of systems rather than trying to just do it by sort of as a discretionary trader, you know, even though they might use internal rules in their own mind, um, which obviously is a very, very logical way of doing things. But why do you think it is so difficult for systematic traders to explain to investors 
that they shouldn't be worried about the fact that we use computers to do this and in fact that it isn't a black box? Well, uh, it's a very good question. I mean, um, I don't think it's difficult for a systematic trader to explain their strategy. I think there are a lot of systematic traders that uh, deliberately try to be very opaque about what they do right? Uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, one of them is they don't want to give away kind of the secret sauce of what they're doing. Mm. And um, I think to a large extent, you know, in the sort of uh, old school uh, trend following world, primarily it's sort of to keep how simple it is from getting out and making people realize, you know, <laughs> why why on earth am I paying 2 and 20 for that? But that's from the manager side, Mark. But on the other hand, I would argue that investors they have a difficulty with accepting, you know, these systems and they try to make them in some ways uh, uh, more complicated by calling them a black box. So I think you're right about the manager side, that, that that's probably one reason. Uh, but, but I think also the investor side is a little bit uh, to blame here that they don't embrace the fact that technology, like if you board a plane, you know the pilot's not going to sit there for 12 hours flying the plane manually. He's going to use an autopilot. And I think most people would prefer he uses an old autopilot, well, uh, you know. I mean, look, I think um, I think that is changing over time. Okay. Um, I think there is a sort of much sort of wider acceptance of quantitative strategies now than there were before. Right. Um, I mean, look, uh, to use your example of the plane, passengers know that, you know, the pilot is relying on a lot of analytics and tools to fly that plane. Mm. But the most important thing is, they know that there is a pilot. Yeah. Um, that if something goes wrong, the pilot can turn off whatever machines are there and just fly the plane. Mm. Um, I think with systematic strategies and the way that you know a majority of them are sort of you know explained and portrayed, is that people are fond of saying we're 100% systematic. Mm. And when you say 100% of anything it tends to make people nervous <laughs> uh, because, look, um, systematic works maybe, I don't know, 95% of the time, but sure. sometimes you have some, some events uh, that can, that can you know, uh, happen, that can hit the world, and it could be either endogenous-type events or exogenous-type events that are unforeseen. Uh, now, again, you know, 99% of the time, you want to follow your system because that's basically the reason you build them. And, yeah. you know, the, the world usually is really not that different. Mm. However, however, I mean, the way we describe our strategy is we say we're about 95% systematic and 5% discretionary. Mm. And the reason we do so is, again, to use your analogy of the plane and the pilot, uh, investors like to know that, yes, you might have kind of the highest tech equipment, but they want a pilot in charge. Yeah. And, you know, the example I give there usually is that, look, um, we're, you know, we're systematic 95 plus percent of the time. But if I'm sitting in my office and my models are screaming to buy stocks and I see a plane heading into a building, mm. uh, I might choose to turn off that model at that point. Sure. Just common sense approach. I mean, uh, the other the other point that, um, that I think confused uh, you know a lot of investors and 
partly, I mean, let's take an example. Yeah, let's take an example. Sure. Um, if you look at sort of traditional trend following, Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of the turtle approach to trend following. Sure. You know, uh, slap a couple of moving averages together, a short-term one and a long-term one, apply it to, you know, 50 of your favorite markets across, you know, four or five different sectors, um, and you've got yourself a hedge fund. Mm. Um, historically, um, you know, from kind of the 70s until, I would say, the early 2000s, that's pretty much what all CTAs did. You can check that by looking at the correlation and the return of CTAs during that period Mm. to the very simple model that I just gave you. It's about 80% and it's a very consistent 80%. Now, some people, um, you know, when you take uh, a trend follower, I mean, it's it's a very simple uh, tool that I, that I just gave you, sure. uh, sort of. Uh, so a lot of people might want to get into the space. They don't really want to question why trends happen. Uh, they just know that this exists and that if you do this, you're going to make money. And they start a fund and they go out and start trying to get investors. Mm-hmm. Now, investors also at the same time, they can sit there and was like, well, you know, uh, this black box, they don't even know what's, uh, you know, how it works, but the explanation that, you know, the manager gives at that point is that, look, you know, we know that trends happen in the world um, and, uh, you know, our models take advantage of trends and they make money when there are trends and, you know, historically we've made a lot of money and so on. So, uh, you know, in that kind of process of uh, the whole, you know, uh, from the manager side as well as from the client side, there is a lot of uncertainty. So the clients they say, well, why do trends happen? You know, how do I know if they happen before they're going to happen again? And and when you're sort of having that conversation with a manager that is sort of you know very orthodox in their approach, that look, I don't know why trends happen. I don't care what they happen. They happen, and that's how we take advantage of them. Which is really was the way a lot of people kind of answered these questions. Right. It creates that you know lack of understanding and uh, sort of, uh, I would say, uh, people just sort of, uh, if you're not comfortable with an investment, uh, it's going to be very difficult for you to get to invest. So what ended up happening for, you know, a lot of CTA investors is that at the initial kind of pitch, they they passed. Then mm. they saw CTAs making a lot of money. You, know, you go through a period, make, I don't know, 40, 50% for a year or two. Mm. Then, so they get dragged into investing, kicking and screaming, <laughs> uh, at which point they're kind of investing at the top in these strategies, sure. which by definition are very cyclical. Uh, and then only to, you know, see their investment plummets in value because they pretty much bought the top at the, at the top of the cycle. Yeah. Uh, and given that they didn't understand, you know, exactly what they were buying, they don't have a conviction to hold, you know, as it's coming down. Mm. So they basically get out at the bottom. And we saw this cycle happen so many times with investors who would always buy the trend followers, you know, at the top and sell it at the bottom. I mean, uh, in, in my cynical side, sort of says that over time, investors as a group have lost money investing in CTAs mm. uh, just because of the timing. Now, using that same approach, I mean, the way I would explain it yes. is that, look, first of all, looking at CTAs, even though we trade, um, you know, 50, 60 different markets, uh, for any decent-sized CTA, 
our bread and butter comes from the financials. Mm-hmm. So you're talking global fixed income, um, you're talking currencies, you're talking equities. Uh, commodities are a nice diversifier, but that's pretty much what it is, a diversifier. Mm. Now, if you look at um, if you look at any economic region, you know, US, Europe, Japan, non-Japan, Asia, um, it has, every one of those regions has its own business cycle. It has a certain either growth or declining economy. Mm-hmm. And the business cycle around that, uh, that sort of, think of that as, uh, as a, let's say it's a growing economy. So you have an upward sloping uh, line mm-hmm. and the business cycle oscillate, oscill- oscillates around that line. Sure. Uh, now, in each one of those economic regions, the job of the central bank is to minimize the amplitude of um, that business cycle relative to the slope of the line. Right. Meaning, if if a central bank is is hugely successful, then they keep their economy on that slope of the growth. Sure. There is no volatility. Sure. Now, obviously, you know, no one <laughs> is that successful. So, what happened is, as the business cycle goes up. Central banks, you know, as the business cycle, let's say, starts going quite a bit above that slope of, you know, the the, the line. Sure. uh, Central banks come in and try to increase interest rates to slow things down. Sure. Once they, you know, and when you are at the bottom, uh, below your growth trend, they come and lower interest rates to essentially bring you back up. Yeah. Now, when you look at the way a central bank uh, it changes interest rate policy, it's not, you know, plus 50, minus 25, plus 75, minus 10, plus 5, minus 10, plus 5. You know, that, that's not how they do it. Right. They go, they go plus, 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 stop. Yeah. They stop for a while. Then they go minus, 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 stop, and they stop for a while. Mm. Now, think of... What happens whenever a central bank embarks on these cycles? Well, every time, let's say they start with a plus, there is a wave that starts and propagates through all the financial markets. Mm. So it changes in interest, in interest rate policies, have effects on currency prices, they have effect on stock prices, they have effect on bond prices. Mm. So now you've started the beginning of a trend. Yeah. Now, when they come again and they do another 25 or 50 and so on, now your trend is getting momentum. Then it goes again, and now the trend is getting more momentum. And then they stop, and that's when your trend kind of you know levels off. And you know, in a perfect world, that's when your position reverses, and <laughs> then you take it on the other side. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, that would have been too easy if that's how exactly how things work. Sure. But what happens is for every market. Every market moves for two reasons. It moves for alpha reasons and it moves for beta reasons. Mm -hmm. Alpha reasons being um, conditions that are only relating to that market. And beta reasons are the overall kind of macro condition or policy, uh, uh, interest rate policy and so on. So what I described in the action of the central bank, that's really, that's macro, that's beta. Mm. Now, if in the absence of any alpha reason, 
then you know then we'll get perfect trends and everything would work fine mm. except that you know things are not that easy so every market again has its own alpha reason now you get the best trends when both the beta and the alpha are pointing in the right direction right now so let's think of what would make a perfect trend um, let's say you're looking at crude oil now we know that in a very hot economy uh, an expanding economy, uh, there is a natural pressure on crude oil prices to go up mm. as there is more business activity, more manufacturing. Uh, so that's that's an upward pressure on, on crude oil prices. Now, let's say in the middle of that happening, you get a giant explosion in Saudi Arabia that causes you know crude oil to spike for local reason, just for, you know, something like supply reasons sure. or just, you know. So then you get a real kind of turbo boost to that move that was happening in crude oil. And you get really the, the, the perfect trend at that point. Because sure. you have both alpha and beta kicking in the same direction. Yeah. When you get really bad trends is when they're completely opposite. Uh, where, you know, the alpha and the beta are kind of fighting with each other. And you get these, you know, choppy markets where you're constantly getting stopped out and back into position and stopped out. So really, even something kind of as for a lot of people, trend following is a very opaque strategy. But really, it's not. I mean, it's not alchemy. It's it's the concept for it is rooted in simple economics and finance. Sure. Um, and I think once sort of in in my experience at least once i've explained it to investors they generally sort of agree and then they get it now yeah. the, the next thing i say is that look given how simple this strategy is it's really not a 2 and 20 strategy mm. people have gotten away with too much uh over the years charging 2 and 20 for this so what happened uh, and, you know, uh, in in the early 2000s, you know, I spent a lot of time doing research on, you know, how to extract more alpha from long-term trend following. Mm. Um, and I kept getting to the conclusion that the best or the most efficient way to get more alpha from trend following is to essentially not charge 2 and 20 so I wrote a paper in the early 2000s how using very simple off-the-shelf um, trend-following techniques like moving averages or breakouts or, you know, things like that um, and some other very simple portfolio technique, you can build a very sort of um, reasonable and uh, high-expectancy uh, trend-following strategy mm. uh, and that if you don't charge 2 and 20 for it, uh, you end up having results that beat sort of, you know, 80, 90% of the trend followers out there. We wrote the paper in the early 2000s, like I said, and published it. And in 2004, we were approached by the endowment of uh, a very large Ivy League university mm. um, that agreed with our premise and asked us to start a fund for them based on that. Um, so since 2004, we have had a uh, fund that's basically a very well diversified trend following strategy uh, that charges a flat 1% management fee 
and no incentive fee. And since we've launched it, it had, you know, 70, 80% very stable correlation to uh, the trend following indices. Um, and, you know, that Ivy League endowment, it's still, um, you know, the, the biggest investor there. But let me, I mean, that's a very interesting observation. I think uh, it's, 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 as I mentioned in, 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 in the early part, it's, it's one of the things I'd love to, to uh, discuss with you because you, you were certainly one of the early uh, adopters uh, on this. But here's my, here's my question about it. To some extent, I feel that uh, managers will have this alternative beta or this uh, CTA replicator um, to give uh, you know investors uh, you know very similar returns to the CTA indices, but at a lower price, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. However, I feel that the CTA indices themselves, because of the underlying CTAs, have changed and. Therefore, I'm not so sure that these replicators today are very, you know, I, I say it a little bit, but I mean, I'm not so sure that they track the CTA indices as well as they used to do, uh, simply for the fact that I think CTAs have have changed. And I think that's another thing that you have made observations about, and that is that managers today uh, have, you know, migrated from being pure trend followers maybe to doing other types of strategies uh, in particular in the last few years to compensate for maybe lack of trends in in the usual sense so i don't know whether you think that that's an issue or whether and and maybe do do these alternative beta strategies or cta replicators do they do they themselves actually need to be evolving and 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 maybe maybe you do them differently today than 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 10 years ago when you started uh look absolutely that's a very sort of astute uh, observation um what happened is if you look at uh, trend follower correlations mm. from kind of the dawn of trend following mm. um until let's say kind of the early 2000s um or early to mid 2000s, I would say. Yeah. Uh, they were a very homogeneous group. Uh, you know, uh, you'd be hard pressed to find CTAs with less than 70% correlation. In some cases, it was more than 80 and solid. Yeah. Um, the reason for that is that pretty much all of them followed the same kind of turtle methodology of long-term trend following. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with all the good and the bad that that strategy entailed. Sure. Now, starting in the mid 2000s, there were a couple of changes um, that CTAs, that some CTAs started doing, that led to what I call sort of uh, the split into in the CTA space between what I call the the old school and the new age CTAs. Right. The old school are the ones that stuck to the turtle approach. Mm -hmm. Um, the new age guys change things in a couple of ways. One of them is fairly technical. Not sure how much we want to go into it, but okay. essentially it has something to do with the fact that, look, um, basically, uh, historically, CTAs kind of uh, size their position in any given market uh, 
on a re- in a relationship that is inversely proportional to the volatility of the market that you traded. Right. Meaning, you wanted to take sort of the same risk per trade. You wanted to risk, let's say, the same amount in your crude oil trade than you did in your, your euro dollar trade. Yeah. But these two markets have vastly different volatilities. So you can't take the same dollar position size in them. So what sure. you do is you adjust it for volatility and then you take a vol adjusted position. Yeah. Now, uh, what happened is that you know the, the the old school way of doing this is you had your position, you stuck your position until that trend reversed, and then you exited and you know you you reversed into the opposite side with the new position size at that point. Sure. Now, one of the biggest criticisms for CTAs historically has been that CTAs have um, high volatility, mm-hmm. uh, large profit give back, big potential drawdowns. Now, what eventually became the new school guys started kind of thinking about the problem. Uh, They correctly realized that, um, look, the volatility at the beginning of a trend is fairly low. Mm. As as that trend matures and starts sort of showing sign of weakness and reversion, volatility goes up significantly. Mm -hmm. So essentially they said, look, it, um, it doesn't make sense that we are taking a position at the beginning of a trend when volatility is low, uh, and therefore we would have a relatively large position size, and holding the same position as the volatility in this trend itself is changing, which is causing us to, you know, to have the higher vol on the portfolio and so on. Sure. So they said, what if we do more frequent sampling of the volatility mm-hmm. and adjust our positions accordingly? Yeah. So the the thinking there is that you'll be sort of taking profit on on you know on on your position as the trend is developing, and then by the time volatility spikes and the trend reverses, you go through that reversal with a very small position, mm-hmm. and therefore uh, minimize the effect on your portfolio, which is great except that it leaves one sort of gap in the thinking. Now, it it automatically assumes that um, short, uh, that an increase in volatility is a precursor to a trend reversal and sure. not a trend continuation. Sure. Now, if that sharp rise in volatility actually is a precursor to a trend continuation, then the rest of them are going to basically sit out that trade, um, which probably will be will be at a time when CTAs are the most needed, which is when volatility is really high, but then going even higher. Yeah. Now, an example of that is what happened in 2008. In 2008, if you remember, volatilities spiked quite a bit going into uh, the summer, you know, the end of the summer. Yeah. By then, a lot of these uh, kind of new school CTAs had pretty much exited a lot of their position because of the volatility spike. Mm. But then what happened is we had Lehman Brothers and then really volatility exploded <laughs> at that point. Sure. So what happened is all these guys ended up missing, you know, once in um, maybe, I don't know, uh, 10, 20 year opportunity in, in the CTA space. And more importantly, they did not deliver the protection to their investors um, 
that is sort of part and parcel of what investors expect from a trend following investment. Sure. Now, so if you look at, you know, I, I won't go, I won't go into which uh, which manager is new school versus old school, but sure. that's one way to look at it. Sure. Now, the other big change that they've made is is that they again correctly realized that trend following has very 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 certain like very distinct characteristics that work in certain market conditions mm. uh, which are really in 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 many ways negatively correlated to a lot of other strategies mm. uh, which is really when you think about it is why you know the the pitch that we make to investors of why they should go into trend following strategies because it's you know mm-hmm. uh, low correlation or negative correlation at some point uh, but these guys said well if we include in what we're doing a negative correlation strategy, um, we're going to improve our risk-adjusted return. Mm. So to give you a very simple example, if you take uh, a simple turtle model of you know moving average-based turtle model, um, you add to it something as simple as a long S&P position. Mm. You can, I mean, maybe not just purely long S&P, but long risk, you can sure. improve the risk-adjusted return of what you're doing. Except that you'll be really deviating from investors' expectation of what you can do in different market conditions. Because at that point, when volatility spikes in the market and risk aversion spikes, you're not going to be delivering the protection that they thought they were getting with you. So what we noticed, the two large changes that we saw in CTA starting in the mid-2000 is that you had one half or you know one group that stayed true to the turtle approach mm-hmm. those are the guys that did really well in 2008 and then you had another group um, that did two significant changes which is the position size adjustment based on volatility mm-hmm. as well as adding uh, totally different uh, strategies that are long risk with negative correlation profile to trend following mm-hmm. into their own fund and these are the guys that have done very well in the last four or five years. Mm. Now, the question is, are investors investing in CTAs as just an absolute return strategy, in which case they would go with the new age guys, but then in which case I would argue that if you're investing in CTAs as an absolute return strategy, then really you should go look elsewhere because there are other hedge fund strategies that do better on an absolute return basis. Mm. Or are investors investing in CTAs as a portfolio tool that works very well against the rest of what they have in the portfolio? And in which case, CTAs really have to stick to what investors' expectation is of their performance in various market conditions. Now, to give you a practical example, uh, when we noticed, sort of, it's a long answer to tie back to your question. No, that's fine. That's perfect. Which is when uh, whether CTAs you know are tracking or not, or whether trackers can uh, you know should change or not. Well, when we noticed this a few years ago, we went back to the Ivy League endowment mm-hmm. and presented the numbers and said, "Look, this is what we think is happening. We think that." You can have better risk-adjusted numbers from us overall if we add a long risk strategy to, to what you do, which we already had because 
in our other fund, in Conquest Macro, we have a very successful long risk strategy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a very easy thing for us to just kind of, you know, turn it on for you in this one. And you will be getting, you know, then then the fund will switch from being kind of a turtle approach to being a new age approach. It's really mm-hmm. not rocket science. It wasn't rocket science to do turtles, and it's still not rocket science to do kind of the new age approach. Sure. And the answer from the endowment was a resounding no. They wanted us to stick to the turtle approach uh, precisely because they used us as a portfolio tool. Mm. And they wanted, you know, they said they have long risk plenty in their portfolio. Um, They think they are better a judge of what long risk strategy to be in than us with a generic long risk strategy. So they wanted to retain that flexibility in what they do. But they wanted us to you know to continue to deliver um, the characteristics of what their expectation is from a traditional trend follower mm-hmm. uh, which is fine so in uh, you mentioned that we have you know a lot of products well the reason we have a lot of products uh, is look the way i think of um, sort of portfolio construction uh, sort of it's a two step process a portfolio is made of individual models I think we are very good at creating different models that do different things in various market conditions. Mm. Maybe maybe it's sort of uh, having three young children and spending a lot of time with Legos. But (laughs) I think of these models as Lego pieces. Right. Now, you can take those Lego pieces and put them together to make a plane then you can take it apart and put them together in a different way to make a submarine or a car or a house. Sure. As long as you have good, solid Lego pieces, you can build them in to, to create any profile that you want, yeah. which is exactly what we do on a portfolio basis. I think we are very good at making these Lego pieces. They're very solid. They're good quality pieces. <laughs> but the construction of them is really in what, how we want the portfolio to look, mm-hmm. what characteristics, you know, all that other stuff. So, you know, if I think of um, our generic turtle approach as one Lego piece, big Lego piece, mm-hmm. and I think of our um, long risk as another Lego piece, each one individually can give you a very different risk profile. But putting them together, now we can go from, you know, a turtle-based trend-following strategy to a new age, uh, absolute return trend-following strategy. Sure. Uh, okay. Let me let me just say to the listeners uh, who uh, are listening and may not know what we refer to when we say a turtle strategy, uh, if you go to episode 13 and 14, uh, that's actually with Jerry Parker and that he is uh, the probably the most successful turtle so if you want to hear the whole turtle story you know go to episode 13 and 14 um, but i want to i want to ask you mark to go back and then take us from where you started realizing this and then how 
conquest evolved as you were adding these strategies? What were your thinking behind adding this particular one as a separate offering and so on and so forth? And before sort of before we leave your story as a whole, I think we need to go from the inception of, of, of conquest and to where we are today before we dive into sort of more the specifics. But I'd like to for you to tell us that story, how the product range sort of evolved uh, uh, in the last 10 years. Absolutely. I mean, look, um, all that stuff that we spoke about so far, that was just um, almost like a side project for us. Right. Uh, that that has never been our bread and butter. Yeah. Uh, that's something that started out of an intellectual exercise, mm -hmm. um, which, uh, you know, we had the luxury and privilege of being kind of the first one to test it and bring yeah. it to market. And now you can see how many different people are adopting that approach. Absolutely. Uh, our... Historically, our bread and butter has been Conquest Macro. Okay. When when I first started, I've always wanted to have, well, let me backtrack for a second. If you look at pretty much over 90% of investment strategies, um, they all tend to do really well in low risk, low volatility environments, mm. and they get slaughtered in high vol environments. Right. Uh, so, you know, periods like um, 98, like, you know, anytime there was sort of, you know, shock in the market, you see a huge, um, you know, a very universal suffering from pretty much every investment strategy. Yeah. Uh, the reason for that um, is that, I mean, in a very, very simplified way, active investment, whether it's sort of, you know, a hedge fund type and so on. Um, make money by sort of buying the risky asset and selling the less risky asset against it mm -hmm. and benefiting from that. So think of this as in the stock market being long kind of high beta versus short low beta and, you know, fixed income, you can do sort of the borrow short lend long, you know, a variety of ways of expressing this in pretty much every single market. Now, one you know, while those strategies, let's say whether you do it in fixed income or whether you do it in equities and so on, while they have low correlation most of the time when the when when environment is not uh, very risk averse, um, their correlation goes to one on the downside whenever risk aversion rises. The reason for that is that each one of those strategies that is benefiting from buying the risky asset and selling the less risky asset needs one very crucial thing for it to work, which is liquidity. Mm. Liquidity is like the oxygen for these strategies. Mm. Now, when there is oxygen, each one is doing its different thing, low correlation, everyone is happy. However, when risk aversion rises in the markets, one of the first casualty of a rise in risk aversion is liquidity. Right. Liquidity dries up significantly. So what happens is that suddenly all these strategies that look to be uncorrelated, where in reality they did have one common risk factor, which is liquidity, right. but they start all losing money at the same time. That's when investors start scratching their head. It was like, well, what happened? We thought we were diversified. Why are they all losing money at the same time? <laughs> sure. Well, the reason is because they're pretty much all you know, long a lot of liquidity. And when that disappears, you know, uh, they lose at the same time. And we've seen that happen, you know, many, many you know, time and time sure, again. Sure, 
So my thinking about Conquest Macro from the beginning was I wanted a product that would do well in risk-averse periods because it's, you know, it's needed. You know, the majority, the, you know, like I said, over 90% of strategies out there don't have that profile. Mm. Now, historically, the way people hedged uh, some of that, you know, rise in risk aversion is they, you know, could have allocated, let's say, to short sellers. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem with short sellers is that stocks go up over time. And it's pretty much a negative expectancy strategy. <laughs> you know, very few short sellers uh, survive for decent parts of time. Sure. And look, markets can go up for, as we saw in the last few years, sure. for a significant period of time. I mean, you know, Keynes has never been more right than now. Right. So markets can be much more, uh, go much longer than it can be, be much more irrational than it can be solvent. Yeah. And the problem with short sellers is when you have that type of strategy, it's not, you know, given that markets can go for long stretches of time, uh, let's say going up in this case, investors find it very difficult to hold on to a short seller over that period of time, mm -hmm. just every month losing and losing and losing. So they end up redeeming out of their hedge, probably just at the time where they needed it the most. Yeah. So, you know, short selling is not sort of a, an ideal hedge to, you know, to portfolios. Uh, the second um, uh, strategy that people allocated to to kind of hedge some of that risk aversion risk was pure long volatility strategies, mm -hmm. just buy vol. Yeah. Now that was great in the 80s and 90s when I believe vols were mispriced. Mm -hmm. You know, I kind of cut. You know, uh, that was that was pretty much my career until <laughs> you know I went off my I traded volatility sure. and it was mispriced. However, you know. In the 90s and early 2000s, we made significant headways in not just understanding volatility and the jump in vol and, you know, second derivatives and so on. But we also, you know, with computers and uh, all these kind of models out there, I mean, whatever edge we had in the models that we had built to give us a better kind of mousetrap for measuring volatility, by the end of the 90s, early 2000, everyone had them. Hmm. So as a result, I think volatility became much more correctly priced. Now, if you assume that volatility is correctly priced and your strategy is based on just buying that, then really you have zero expectancy uh, but if you factor in transaction cost and you know things like that you end up with a negative expectancy mm -hmm. and again when you look at sort of investment in pure long vol strategy i don't know if any of them still exist but they had that characteristic of bleeding losing 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 over you know significant periods of time and then generally you know investors redeemed before vol spiked and they made a lot of money the third one that people allocated to was trend following, right. long-term trend following. Now, there is, I think, a big misconception out there is that uh, investors believe that long-term trend following is a long volatility strategy. It's not. Um, I actually wrote a paper on that. And the paper was published and it won the best paper award by institutional investor. Okay. I think it was published in the Journal of Alternative Investments. Mm -hmm. Long-term trend followers 
are uh, long the second derivative of volatility. Mm-hmm. If a volatility event happens and that event is sufficiently large, then it can kick into place trends that can go for quite you know a distance and over time for trend followers to really benefit from them. So mm-hmm. think of what happened in 2008. Now, an example where trend following made money, but you could have just as easily lost money. Let's say, go back to September 11, 2001. Mm-hmm. When that tragedy happened, investor uh, trend followers made money. Mm. But the reason they made money is that when September 11th happened, obviously, stocks went down and bonds went up, mm. just to kind of simplify things. Sure. However, the markets, the trends in stocks and bonds had turned, you know, a few months before into short stocks and long bonds. Right. So when you got that exogenous event, which was September 11, uh, it basically, again, uh, using our example of alpha and beta, sure. uh, the beta was correctly in place, mm. and that was an alpha event that really pushed everything in one direction. Sure. Now, if September 11, 2000, sorry, September 11, 2001, had happened a year before mm. when long-term trend followers were long stocks and short bonds, they would have gotten destroyed. Right. The point I'm trying to make is that long-term trend following is not long short-term vol, but it can be long very long-term vol or the second derivative of vol. Sure. However, that doesn't hold true. In in another piece um, of research that we put out Mm -hmm. and was published in a book by Risk Books in London in 2008, Mm-hmm. What we proved is that when you come down in the trend following spectrum from the long-term trend following to the very short-term trend following, starting you know one month and under, essentially trend following strategies that are very short in duration start acting very much like pure long volatility strategies. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of simplifying a little bit, sure. but it, you know, it, it, the whole paper is available. I think you might be able to find it online or through risk books in their book. Okay. So, looking at kind of the the uh, what's available for an investor as protection against short-term risk and volatility spiking or risk aversion and so on, really there wasn't any good product out there. Right. Um, and that was the idea why with Conquest Macro we wanted to have a product that essentially had two mandates. The first one, and very important one, is to be an absolute return strategy. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not a good absolute return strategy, investors will not hold you long enough to fulfill your promise, basically. Right. Um, and the second mandate was to try to generate the bulk of that absolute return in what we call periods of risk aversion, which are periods of high volatility and high volatility of volatility. Right. Now, uh, our expectation for the fund is to return somewhere between 5 and 10% um, in risk-seeking periods, in low-vol environments periods, mm-hmm. and return over 30% in risk-averse periods. Sure. In our actual trading, since we started, we have annualized over 30% in those risk-averse periods. Mm-hmm. We have checked that, that box. Sure. Now, 
on the risk-seeking side is where we've had to do a lot of work to improve our strategies. Mm -hmm. So depending on when you look at our track record, and so we've had many improvements that happened over the years. Sure. I would say that our actual track record is probably flat to slightly positive in risk-seeking periods, mm -hmm. which by itself is still a very significant improvement over short sellers and long wall strategies. Sure, sure. But looking at, you know, our track record since we've made a lot of the improvement in our risk-seeking performance, that's tracking closer to 5 to 10% annualized. Mm. So if I think of our return uh, based on our risk index and our analysis of the risk environment, we model the world to be roughly about 70% of the time risk-seeking, mm -hmm. low vol, and about 30% of the time risk-averse. Right. So just quick back on the of the envelope calculation, if you know the seventy percent of the time that you are seeking, you're going to make you know five to ten percent. Call it you know, seven and change sure. uh, average. You're going to make you know roughly five percent in that period. Then in the thirty percent of the time that you're going to make thirty percent. Uh, from your risk-averse performance, you're going to make another kind of nine-ish percent. So I think we're kind of a 14, 15 percent uh, type strategy mm. over time, uh, but with a very, very important portfolio benefit in the way that we deliver those returns. True. Here's a question. I mean, that obviously is very, very interesting that trying to design a program that not only gives investors the bulk of the return when they most need it but actually also can make returns when they don't really need it but obviously you know it's an absolute return strategy and therefore it's nice to have an absolute return through those periods so in a sense you could say it's it's the best of both worlds now with traditional trend following my observation is that it it can't deliver both i mean there's, there's simply going to be a period where it will lose money of course, the question is then um, how much will you lose and so on and so forth. Uh, but, but, but it's kind of universally, I think, accepted that you know, trend following can't be the best of both worlds. It sounds to me like a very tall order to try and do both. How do you, try, how do you, how do you achieve that? I mean, look, it's a lot of uh, very hard work and a lot of trial and error. And I mean, in a way, um, 15 years on, I think we have the best product we've ever had. Mm -hmm. And I think it's both an ability to design individual models that over time will deliver exactly what, you know, not just not the return, but the risk profile that you expect. Hmm. I don't understand how anyone can kind of promise a certain return profile because really returns are a function of what the market gives you. Sure. And no one really knows ahead of time what the market will give you. Hmm. Our biggest effect comes on risk control. If you build up a certain risk profile, that risk profile is going to be associated with different return in different market conditions. Hmm. So you start with, you know, that concept. And what we do is we, you know, we have, I think, our risk index. We One of the biggest uh, benefits that we've sort of uh, reaped in the portfolio was we when we came up with the idea of the risk index. Mm -hmm. And again, um, at that time, very few people thought of risk indices or even had a risk index. Why did you want to, why did you want to develop that, uh, Mark? Well, um, it was very simple. I mean, in trying to 
have the best product that responded very well in periods of um, higher volatility. Mm-hmm. We we wanted to have you know a, a quantifiable way to go and measure what we de- what we defined as you know high volatility versus low volatility. Was it more to visualize to people, or is it something that you use in, no, 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 in the actual program? We use we use in our actual program. Okay. So the premise before we started we built our risk index was that different strategies do differently in different risk environment. If we had a proper way to measure the risk environment through a risk index, we can use that to affect our risk allocation methodology across the different strategies within our portfolio and therefore have a better portfolio. Yeah. Uh, simple premise. So the first step was to go out and say, because historically when people kind of looked at risk, they looked at it in sort of individual pockets, meaning Mm. either through the prism of the VIX, Mm. but really VIX is only equities, or through, you know, FX volatility for people who traded, you know, uh, FX options, or swap spreads for people who did, you know, more fixed income. But people were not kind of looking at a much more comprehensive view of risk. Right. What we basically observed is that, look, one of the benefits of having a risk index is it really kind of pushes your tentacles across all the different parts of the capital markets. On a daily basis, you're able to measure the temperature of pretty much all the different areas from liquidity risk to credit risk to, because I mean, the way we define it, we said, okay, well, what are the different risks that people kind of look at? Well, you have liquidity risk, you have credit risk, you have emerging market risk, you have equity risk, you have foreign exchange risk. So when you have a much more comprehensive view of these risks, it gives you a much better way of assessing market vulnerabilities, let's, let's, let's say. Sure. Uh, because a lot of the time, depending on where the risk aversion ends up coming from, you start seeing sign of that in that particular you know, dark corner of the market way before anybody else starts kind of feeling it or seeing it. So it gives you some preparation time to go and think about what you want to do and how you want to do it. So once we built our risk index, uh, it turned out that sort of intuition was spot on, which Mm -hmm. is that there is very strong statistical evidence that different strategies consistently do very different things in very different um, risk environments. And that there was a certain level of autocorrelation in the risk index that kind of allowed you to use some of that information. Now, Mm. in periods of switching from one risk environment to the other, there is, you know, the expected noise in the data around those points, which is not something insurmountable. I mean, you can very easily filter out that noise. Uh, But once you got into the body of a risk environment, your probability of staying in it was much higher than the probability of reversing until you had an event that caused it to reverse. And again, you go back to that noise and so on. Uh, But what we found is that um, using an asset allocation strategy greatly benefits our return uh, because it allowed us to put our resources where they had the highest expectancy given the risk environment. Sure. And given that, you know, we thought we 
had a very good mousetrap for figuring when the risk environment, what it is, what it's telling us, and when it's changing. As a matter of fact, I mean, we, we put these changes in our portfolio in uh, March of 2005. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, measuring the effect of those changes for the next few years, it ended up improving our risk-adjusted returns by about 30%. Right. Just that one change alone. Now, once, you know, again, once we were able to see the benefit from allocating to different strategies that have different risk profile and different correlation profile using our sort of risk index, it spurred us into going out and creating a lot more strategies uh, sort of more Lego pieces, let's say, Mm -hmm. that do different things in different risk environment. So, you know, when, when we came, first came up with our risk index, we had three uh, sub-strategies within Conquest Macro. Mm-hmm. We had a long vol strategy, we had a short-term trend-following strategy, mm-hmm. and we had a non-trend and a counter-trend strategy. Now, <laughs> using, you know, uh, the risk index, what we found is that in risk-averse periods, our sure. best performer was our long vol component, right. which makes you know sense. perfect sense. Yeah. However, what we also found out that in risk-seeking periods, uh, short-term trend following ends up doing significantly better than long vol, because even in very low volatility environment, you still have some short-term trends that you can take advantage of. Sure, sure. What we also found, and this again caused me kind of to scratch my head a little bit at first, <laughs> but when I put in our uh, risk bucket, that has in it both counter-trend and non-trend strategies. Mm-hmm. On the surface, it showed uh, no effect of the risk environment on that on that uh, sub-strategy, which kind of puzzled me for a little bit until we st- we dug down at the individual model level with because each one of those sub-strategies has many different models. Mm. Uh, what we found is that pretty much half of the models were affected in one way and half of the other models were affected in another way. And the net effect was no change in that risk bucket, which again, you know, made sense. And because if you look at our long vol uh, sub-strategy, individual models there have correlations, you know, let's say between teens to kind of 50, 60 or so. If you look at our short-term trend following risk bucket, um, Again, correlation probably 40, 50, 60, and so on. Uh, in both of these, all positive correlation. Therefore, you really saw a clear effect from the change in the risk environment. When you look at our non-trend and counter-trend strategy, it has both uh, strategies that do really well in risk-seeking periods and strategies that do risk-averse periods. Therefore, the net, I mean, it has as components negatively correlated strategies to each other. Mm. Therefore, the effect from the risk environment was kind of neutralized by having the component be negatively correlated to each Mm. other. Now, when, as I said, we made the changes uh, to go from uh, static risk allocation to a dynamic risk allocation based on the risk environment, Mm. we improved our returns by about 30%. Mm. Uh, However, the way I viewed that improvement was more like the sort of improvement you get from uh, cost cutting. Right. It was just, you know, a, a better rearrangement of the deck chairs. Okay. But we, I still wanted a component that actually 
added positive returns in the seeking periods. Yeah. And that's where we went out and built our fourth sub-strategy, which is what we call long risk, which is a strategy that um, essentially has about 80% correlation to hedge funds right. uh, that uses only futures and FX. Uh, that as a standalone could be a very good product by itself because, again, it gives you a sharp of about one, 80% correlation to hedge fund using only futures and effects, mm. which as a standalone strategy would qualify it as a CTA. Sure. So you can be technically invested like a hedge fund but getting a tax treatment of the CTA. Right. And which is, by the way, uh, in our product offering, we also offer it separately as a standalone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was hugely helpful to the Conquest macro portfolio because now we had one more risk bucket that we can allocate to in risk-seeking period that really would give us you know, pure, simple, absolute return on the positive side. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, the, the rest of the evolution of the models within Conquest macro is, uh, you know, historically we started off with only... Uh, price-based models mm-hmm. slowly you know after wouldn't be so slowly but after about you know seven eight nine years we progressed into an area that we call a quant macro which is models that take a combination of two things uh, fundamental data as well as technical data mm. and that again allowed us to have you know more leeway on how to allocate within the different risk environments and so on mm. So you have these four strategies with inside the uh, the macro program. Are you able to kind of visualize and talk just briefly a little bit about what, you know, how each of them, what they do, uh, so to speak, just to make it sort of maybe simplified a little bit? Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.